If you have your Bibles, I pray you do, open up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Um, we're going to find in this uh, chapter that is, I think, of one of the most highly uh, debated chapters in all the Bible. Um, and so I think what we really need to do is, is, is just kind of pause and, and let's, let's take a, a deep self-examination of our hearts and our relationship with God as we kind of dig into Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. And as we look at just the first six verses of Hebrews 6, I think in it we're going to be challenged in the text to grow in our faith and to move on beyond just the elementary principles or doctrines of Christ and, and pursue what he calls maturity in our faith so that we don't get tempted to fall back on relying upon the ideas of works that lead to salvation. Uh, instead, we should ought to be relying upon the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ and what he offers. So let's begin right off. Um, the first thing he tells us is right here in the first few verses, uh, he tells us that we're supposed to leave the elementary doctrines about Christ. Well, what does that mean? Let's look at verses 1 through and 3 as we begin. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So in other words, it's time to grow up, is what he's telling the church there in Hebrews. And, and, but you realize you can't force yourself to grow up. You can't force yourself into maturity. It, it's something that happens over a course of time. A lot of real children, uh, especially those in their teenage years, really want to become adults now. I mean, that's, that's the way it is. At least was when I was a teenager. I could not wait to be an adult. And so I begin to try and do things to become more adult-like in my life. And you want others to perceive you that way. But the reality is they know you're still a teenager. They know you're still a child. They know that you're still immature in things about life. And no matter how we push the limits... No matter how hard they try, they just cannot grow faster than their years will allow. It happens naturally if certain conditions are met. I mean, if, if a child gets enough rest, they get enough food, they get enough exercise, they get enough love, then they mature over time. But if they do not get that, the same thing is true. Without that kind of of food and exercise and, and, and love and growth won't take place unless there's time with it. And the same thing is true about our spiritual life and our spiritual growth as we move on to mature, maturity. You can't force yourself to immediately become mature. It takes time before you get there. And, 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 and if we want to be healthy. We want to grow. And so in our spiritual growth, it's a matter of not only knowledge, but obedience. Obedience and time. And if, if we're learning the Word of God and we're obeying the Word of God, then over time, you will naturally just become mature spiritually. But you've got to spend the time to feed yourself in the Word of God, and you've got to give your time in obedience to the Word of God, exercising your faith, and then as the years go by, we do grow up in Christ. 
I mean, that's why the, the biblical writers, they place so much emphasis on gaining biblical knowledge because they want us to know the Bible, and that is the very beginning point of our maturity. You cannot obey what you do not know. And so we no longer want to live in ignorance about the Word of God and what He wants us to do, so we read it, we study it, we practice it in our lives, we apply its principles so that we grow in Christ. Now, we see right here in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, that there are six principles or doctrines or teachings, some might say, that the author of Hebrews thinks every Christian should have known by now. And these verses contain what he says are the foundation or, or the, the milk doctrines, as he concludes here in chapter 5 and talks about we're still on milk the elementary principles, the kindergarten truths, the discipleship 101. Basically, these are the basic, simple things that we need to know as we grow in Christ. And so let's look at these six things first, and then we'll dig in a little bit different in another direction. So what are these foundational or these elementary principles or doctrines of Christ? A question has been dated, debated, as I said, for centuries about this statement. Let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. So this is, are these elementary doctrines, are they elementary Christian principles and practices, or are they elementary Jewish principles and doctrines and practices that lead us to Christ, which are to be left behind? Where I tend to sit is on this area. I tend to believe that the thrust of Hebrews is that the readers are to abandon the Old Covenant under the Jewish practices and principles that were established there, which are the old types and shadows of the things to come, and that they are then to place themselves into a relationship and embrace a better idea, a better covenant, and the better practices that are under this new relationship we have with Jesus. And so Hebrews is telling us about this new covenant that is going to be established between Christ and us that will now supersede the old covenant that God had with his people. Well, let's look at these first six doctrines. The first one is this, repentance from dead works. Repentance, we know, is the turning around point of, of which a person turns away from sin and they move towards God and they try to obey him and that. However, repentance is not, listen to this, repentance is not synonymous with faith, nor does faith include repentance they are two separate things and so here's how i could put it a non-christian they can repent and they can still not be a christian in other words they can begin to choose not to live in a manner that is ungodly and unruly and unwise and they can start living by the principles that god has but still not want to put their faith in god because they don't want to believe in him and they don't want to believe in jesus but yet they can repent of their ways and they can begin to live a good and a profitable lifestyle. But that doesn't save them. And this is what the Jewish people had always been trying to do. They, they had hoped to gain eternal life by living a life of obedience to the law. But life could never be gained through the law. Only judgment and condemnation comes from the law. It didn't come to bring life. It came to bring death. And the righteous works which they, were, they thought were, they were performing were actually, as the prophet Isaiah says, they're filthy rags in God's eyes. It's not about your good works 
because those aren't going to accomplish anything except for the way you are in relationship to others, but not in our relationship with God. They were dead works. They were pointless. They were futile. They were empty. They are filthy rags. Now, the book of Acts, the book of Galatians and Hebrews, it reveals for us that it has always been difficult for the Jewish people to try and give up obeying the law and to live by grace. This is something that they were really struggling on. How do we depend solely on the grace and the goodness of God? Shouldn't we be doing something as well? Don't we have to do something to earn our salvation? And so that's really what was going on here. This is what they thought they must do if they're going to operate under grace rather than the law. They thought that they must repent from the dead works of the law and realize that living by the law will not put them in good standing with God. Now, Jerusalem had a little conference going on here in the book of Acts, chapter 15, and we see that Paul comes and he has this conversation with the elders there and the apostles and those that are leading the church in Jerusalem, and he's trying to explain to his fellow Jews and he's writing about you know, all of this in Romans and in Galatians, how we don't have to live by works any longer. We live by grace. And when we're Christians, we must depend upon the grace of God and not upon the works of the law. So that's a foundational thing, repentance from the works of the law, repentance from these dead things that really can't give us life. The second area is this. We need to have faith toward God, or maybe a better translation might be faith in God. The Jewish people, they thought they knew God, but, but they really didn't. The God that they knew, the God that they worshipped, and really they still do, even today in Jerusalem, is a God who can be reached, who, who can be reached they think, through the law. But the God of the Bible is not that kind of God. The works of the law will never give anybody a human relationship with God. A genuine relationship with God comes only through faith in Christ. Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus is, is a great example of this. You have to go back to the chapter, uh, book of Acts in chapter 9, and we discover that Paul, who has been out persecuting the Christians, and he's now been given charge to go up to Damascus and to confront the Christians that are starting up a church up there. And on his way up to Damascus, along this Damascus road, Jesus confronts him. And he's got this conversion thing. And when he meets Jesus, Saul responds this way. Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds by saying, who are you, Lord? You see, Saul has an incorrect theology about who God was. He, he could not see God coming into this world in the form of Jesus, becoming a Messiah that would go to a cross and die for us. And so his, his Old Testament thinking about who God really was is now confronted on this road. And see, so Saul thought that to work against God, to work against the people who were becoming Christians was really what God had intended for him to do. And it's not until after Saul finally recognizes that this is Jesus that has confronted him on the road and that this Jesus is not only God, but it is also his Savior, that Paul begins to develop a true faith in him and a true belief about who God is. And so this is what the Apostle Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. 
Listen to what he says. He says, speaking to his Jewish readers, Peter says that, that Christ came for the Jews who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. I mean, that verse makes it very clear. They only came to a correct belief in God after they believed in Jesus for eternal life. And so in order to really understand who God is, you have to see him through Christ. Now the third instruction he talks about here, this foundation, is that of washings. The word washings is also in the plural form. And in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 10 also uses this same word about various washings. But what it's speaking about is the washings of ceremonialism. Some translations in your, that you may have before you, such as the King James Version or the NIV, they may use the word baptisms. But let's not get confused here. The word baptism is not the baptism that we do to enter into relationship with Christ, but it's the baptism, it's a washing that is done in a ceremonial process so that you could be clean before you went to the altar and offered up your sacrifices. And so we don't need to get those two confused. The ceremonial washings were done in connection with the Jewish faith and not with the faith of Christianity. So let's kind of look at some of these ceremonial washings that were performed by the priest in their ministries. You can go to Exodus chapter 19, and you'll see it's all written out there that, that that's what they were supposed to do. And really, in the temple, there was this massive laver that was filled with water, and it was used for these ceremonial washings. The officiating priest, he had to not only wash his hands, but he also had to wash the sacrifice that was being offered up. And he also had to wash the people who were helping him. And he had to wash even the vessels of the utensils that were being used in the temple for the sacrifice. So everything had to be immersed into this water. They had to be baptized. They had to be washed before you could go before the sacrifice. And the, and the high priest himself had to go in and immerse himself and bathe himself before he could go in and offer up the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And you'll see that in Leviticus chapter 16. In addition, there were a variety of other washings for ceremonially defiled people. And you can go to Leviticus 15 and 17 and Numbers 19. So all these things are written out there, what these ceremonial washings are all about. Now, when we come to the first century in which Jesus is living, the Pharisees and the Pharisaical Judaism practice ritual immersions in specifically built pools that they called mikvot. Mikvahs uh, are these, like a baptistry that we have here at the church, but it had running water that ran from one side and flowed through it and ran out the other side so that what was being ceremonial washed could be cleansed and it didn't leave the sins and the stains and the dirt behind. And so in these mikvahs, they were, there were two stairways, one that went down and then one that went out. So as you came in to be cleansed, you came down one set of stairs, and then you immersed yourself and dipped yourself under to remove the uncleanliness about your life, and then you exited clean and whole out the other side. Now, when we look at all these things, they needed to be washed for a variety of reasons. For example, let's say you went to the market to go get your food for this week. While you were at the market, maybe you came in contact with a Gentile who happened to be hanging around, or maybe it was another unclean person that came before you. And so before you actually took the food and yourself home inside your house, 
You would go and be baptized, be immersed, ceremonially cleansed, so that you didn't bring with you the filth of the Gentiles or the unclean people with you. So it was a common occurrence in everyday life that they did. And so here we say that they are to no longer lay again the foundation, not only of repentance of, 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 of the dead works or from uh, putting their faith towards God, but also these washings. A fourth aspect is laying on of hands. Now, I remember my dad saying, I'm going to get my hands on you, but that was usually because I probably had done something wrong. That's not what the laying on of hands was. To the Jews, laying on of hands meant identification. And so in the Old Testament, they would lay their hands on the sacrifice. So let's say they're bringing a goat to be sacrificed or a dove to be sacrificed. They then would take and put their hands on that object that is going to be sacrificed, that animal, and it would somehow then transfer their identity into that so that when it was sacrificed, it was as if they were being sacrificed for their sins. So it was an identification process for them. And so they used that to, to pass on their sins to that which was being sacrificed. Now besides the sacrificial ritual, the laying on of hands was done to appoint someone to a public office or to bestow a blessing on someone. Remember, we had the twin boys, uh, Esau and Jacob. And uh, Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing as well, and that his father Isaac then laid his hands on him and blessed him. So it was one of those things as well. And sometimes you might even find them laying on their hands of someone in the sense of healing as well. Now that's in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it, it's, it's very much a practice as well. We can see that it had something to do with the ordination of office. So if someone was being ordained into a ministry position, we see that in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Or maybe it was with the passing of a supernatural gift onto somebody else. We see that in Acts chapter 8. With healing, we also see that in the book of Acts chapters 9 and, and, verse, and chapter 28. And also to set people apart for a specific ministry. So Paul and Barnabas and Silas, they might have had the elders of a church lay their hands on them and send them out for a specific ministry to be done. A fifth foundation or a fifth doctrine might be this, called the resurrection of the dead. The Old Testament did teach the resurrection of the dead and there would be this future resurrection of, of dead bodies but it was kind of vague so vague that there really is really a little bit of disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about whether resurrection was a possibility the Pharisees they held to the doctrine of resurrection because they accepted the authority of the prophets and of Moses and, and, and matter of fact uh, the Sadducees they denied it because they didn't want to accept the aspect of somebody uh, being raised back to life. They did not see it written in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they found that these things really would not have happened. But Jesus, he accuses the Sadducees, and you can find this in Matthew chapter 22. He accuses the Sadducees of an error because they don't believe in the resurrection, even the resurrection of Moses and the resurrection of those who, because he tells them, did not our God in heaven say to Moses that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac? I am, and he speaks to them as if they are still living, even though at Moses' time frame, they had been dead many years. 
there's also this aspect that the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament scriptures that kind of floods a light on the possibility of our own resurrection and what kind of bodies that we're going to have when we're raised. And you can read through there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a wonderful segment that talks about the resurrection of the bodies. But our writer here in Hebrews is urging his readers to abandon the vagueness of the Jewish eschatology for a much stronger and a clear eschatology of the gospel, which talks about what's going to happen in the future. And the sixth foundation is this, eternal judgment. While the Jews did learn about the judgment to come from the Old Testament, they also, I think, developed very flawed ideas of what that might be. You see, because they believed that the Jewish people were exempt from eternal judgment. While Gentiles were automatically condemned because they were Gentiles, and, and they confused the ideas about the standards by which God is going to judge Jewish ideas of judgment included things such as the restoration of their property of Palestine to them, that God was going to make sure that they always had it. Um, the victories over all of nations uh, of Israel's enemies, that God would provide that they would always be victorious, and that there would be this natural glory of Israel itself. And so our author here in Hebrews is he's urging us to leave behind such illogical statements of doctrine and hear instead what God himself is saying about these clear New Testament principles that are being laid out in Christ. And so what does verse 3 of chapter 6 say? God permitting. He says, and this we will do if God permits. I mean, I love that. After laying down these six foundational principles of doctrines, the author says it will only learn from them and will only move on and will only mature if God permits. It has nothing to do about us. It's all about God and His work in our lives. You see, it's not about our works. It's about God and His grace to us. He then is the author of our life. He is the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who's going to make us grow and bring us to maturity. And so once again, it's all back to God. Growing into maturity is at God's discretion and by His permission. We're called to know what he wants us to know and to do what he wants us to do, but moving on to maturity still is in his timetable. And we all grow at different rates, but God is working us through our life and through our experience and through our knowledge of his word, each one of us at different ways, but we still are called to be faithful to him in these things. We are called to know what he wants us to do and to do what he wants us to do. And we're going to learn these doctrines, however, if God permits. And when we learn them, we're going to only move on to maturity if God permits. We're required to take care of our spiritual health. I mean, God expects us to do that. But He's the one who causes growth. And growth does not always come at a constant speed. Just as children go through their growth spurts, so, all do, so also do Christians in our faith. When a person first becomes a Christian, they may grow quite a bit rapidly at first, but then it kind of seems to slow down. And then there are other times, years down the road, that they begin to really begin to understand. And, and all of a sudden, God opens up a better understanding and an insight for them, and their faith and their knowledge just jumps like crazy. 
I mean, that's what happened to Paul. Now, when Paul first became a Christian, and you go to the book of Acts chapter 9, and you can read his story there about becoming a Christian. When he first became a Christian, he immediately tried to convert all the Jews around him, no matter where he was. And so as he's there in Damascus, he is preaching and, and boldly preaching and debating with them and arguing with them, and he's trying to show them who Jesus is, and it gets so heated in there that they're trying to kill him because of his approach and so they have to lower him in a basket over the wall so he can get escape before they try to kill him but it goes on beyond just that you know acts chapter 9 tells us that he won a lot of arguments and debates but he made a lot of enemies and so then he goes from damascus down to jerusalem and there in jerusalem what he's doing he's arguing with the jews again in the temple and he's teaching them this and teaching them that and all of a sudden they're beginning to hate him for what he's saying and they want to kill him as well and so the christians they pull him aside and they say you can't be doing this and so they send him off to caesarea by the sea and they ship him off to tarsus now it's funny when you read here in, in chapter 9 in the book of acts it says once they get saul out of the way this is the church and they send him off to Tarsus, it says, then there was peace in Judea and Galilee and Samaria. I mean, Saul, he is so eager to upturn everybody's cart that he's making a mess of things. And it takes him a while under God's direction and God's instruction. He even says that God took him aside for a short period of time and, and informed him about all these things. And then when he comes back in, the radical change in him makes a radical change in everybody else. And he's not upsetting the cart as much, even though he still gets accused of that quite a few times. You see, growth takes time, and only God can bring it about. And growing him to maturity takes a lifetime. Sometimes God does not permit someone to move on to maturity and deeper spiritual truths until they have learned and they've grasped and they've accomplished this, the certain simple things that he has for us to begin with. And here in our context, one of the things God wants us for his people to learn, they're the milk doctrines, is what he calls them there in chapter 5. But they're not supposed to stop there. They're supposed to move on towards solid food, to the meat and they're supposed to start eating this solid food of faith so that they can grow. You can't just stay in the simple first grade Sunday school lessons. You've got to move on to where you're in seminary at some point. And you're, you're discovering the deep mysteries of the scripture that are displayed for us when we begin to see it through Jesus. And all of a sudden this veil is lifted from our eyes and we see the hidden message from generations that it's all about Jesus and what he's going to do in our lives. Now the second thing in this chapter here, in verses 4, 5, and 6, is that we are to pursue maturity and avoid this word apostasy, uh, false teachings uh, that, that's going to lead us away from God. Listen to what it says in verses 4 through 6. It says, For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It should be obvious to us in verses 4 and 5 that the author is describing 
genuine Christians here. I mean, if you want to describe the gifts and the experiences that God has given to Christians, how else could you do it? I mean, he, he, he lays out before us what is very clear for us in the Christian mind, for only Christians, I think, can experience these things. Just as there were six doctrines that they should be attentive to, now he lays out six doctrines as well in descriptive terms that are verbs and actions in an errorist sense, something that should be past tense for us, that we should be warned about. And so what are these six descriptive errorist participle phrases? The first one is this, have once been enlightened. Those who have once been enlightened is the same terminology that's used by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and in Ephesians chapter 5 and in Ephesians chapter, chapter 1 to refer to the enlightenment that we receive from God when the gospel breaks through the blindness of our hearts and our faith concerning his word. And the Greek text is extremely clear in this and it uses a word hapex which means once for all. Once for all time is what it's saying for us. It happens once and that's all that it needs. And so certainly the first participle, enlightened, indicates a once for all event that took place in the life of the Christian. All right, And so what is this once for all event? These are all past tense verbs giving us a good indication that the person has already become a Christian. Justin Martyr helps us understand this term enlightenment. and We can read this in, in a couple of his works, Apologia 1 and in, in his dialogue to Trifo chapter 122. And this is what he says about the word enlightenment, that it was a term used by the early church which was synonymous with baptism. So if this enlightenment here in verse 4 is synonymous with baptism, then he's specifically speaking to Christians. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been baptized, who have been enlightened. And so we need to know that that this is for us as Christians. We need to listen to what he's telling us here in chapter 6. And the second thing is this, the second participle is, have tasted of the heavenly gift. Salvation is, of course, the heavenly gifts. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. That it's a gift of God. It's nothing that we have done, but it is by, by grace through faith that we are gifted with our salvation. And so the word tasted that he uses here in this passage of Scripture doesn't mean just a little sample, like some people might sample Christianity. It means that it's, it's, it's not like when you go into Main Street Creamery in Washington and, and you say, can I have a little taste of that? Can I have a taste of that piece? And it's not just sampling things. What this actually means, the Greek word tasted, means to experience fully. So to taste the heavenly, the heavenly gift means to fully experience the heavenly gift of salvation. Likewise, when Peter tells us that we have fully experienced the kindness of God, this word is also used in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we have tasted, we have experienced the kindness of God. The third one is this. This is the third errorous participle that's laid out before us. It is to have shared in the Holy Spirit. Then it says that we, we have shared in the Holy Spirit. We've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. And that word that is used there, 
metahoi, three other times the Hebrew uses it to, to mean a participate in something. And, and it's got this dynamic and this deep way to experience it. Now over in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, which we've already looked at, we read that we have come to share in Christ. And so only Christians can be partakers with Christ with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't bestow His Holy Spirit on people who aren't in Christ. It is the gift of God. And so as we read these first three participles, we're reminded that the same things are said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Listen to this. I'll tie them all together. And Peter said to those who were there, they're asking, what are we going to do to be saved? Because we've just realized, after you said this, we've crucified our Messiah. And so he responds, he says, repent and be baptized which is the word enlightened, and every, in the, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, there's your heavenly gift, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we then become partakers and sharers in the Holy Spirit. And this language cannot be properly applied to anyone, but to those who have already become Christians. Now he moves on. And the fourth participle that is used here is this idea of, he says, have tasted the goodness of the word of God. So that word taste is used again, and it means to fully experience the word of God. The Bible comes to life, and and unbelievers, they can't understand it. They don't get it. Matter of fact, Paul writes the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, the natural person, now that natural person is a person who is not a disciple of Christ. He says, listen what he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And see, God helps Christians. When we look at the Word of God through Christ, God helps us come to a a full appreciation and a full experience of it. We get to taste the goodness of the Word of God ultimately. And the fifth one is this, the powers of the age to come. And the word tasted is understood to go right along with this one. It's in the same sentence structure. And so when people are healed or have their prayers answered by God, they're experiencing the powers of the age to come. And again, this is a blessing reserved only for Christians. And so we've seen five positive descriptions of the Christian that this warning is being focused on. And so far, we've seen nothing really about it that would really warrant his warning to us. But it's the sixth item that stops us in our tracks. The sixth participle is this, have fallen away. That's what he says. Verse 6, and then have fallen away. The King James and the NIV, along with some other translations, have the word if. You know, I-F, they have this little word if included at the very beginning of this sentence structure. However, it's not in the original Greek language. It's not in the original text. When the writer of Hebrews wrote it, he did not write in for us the word if. He says, they have fallen away. It is a past tense. Not if they have fallen away, but then they have fallen away. And some suggest that maybe our translators, 
and this is one of the things we get anytime we look at a book uh, in English translation or Greek or, or from the Greek to English or to German or to, to uh, Portuguese or whatever. Anytime we're translating it, the translator has to put forth his understanding. And sometimes we put words in that might go along with our own theology. And some have suggested that they put the word if in these translations because if that word if is not in there this verse may contradict their doctrinal standing on the perseverance of the saints in other words once saved always saved but the word parapipto that's used here is translated fallen away is not used anywhere else in the new testament However, it does occur in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done years before. But the passages that it is used in the Septuagint, those passages are dealing with apostasy or the renunciation of your religious beliefs. That's what apostasy means, that you no longer believe this way, and so you deny your faith and you're going to do something different. And so he's saying that this word parapipto here in this section of verse 6 is that if they deny their faith in Christ, if they have fallen away from this, then we have this warning. I mean, it's, it's obvious that the word is intended to cover the action of some of the readers here in Hebrews who were seriously considering, namely abandoning Christianity in favor of returning to Judaism and a works salvation in connection with the law. Remember, these were Christians who were Jewish or Hebrews, and they were being persecuted by other Hebrews who practiced Judaism rather than Christianity. And they were challenging them to reject the teachings of Christ and to return to proper Judaism. Isn't that what Paul was doing himself when he was persecuting the, the Christians? He was trying to get them to leave Christ and come back to Judaism and worship at the temple the way they're supposed to. And so falling away means to fall away from the basic truths of Christianity and to the ways of living under the Levitical laws of Judaism you're supposed to go back to. To fall away means to fall into a false teaching, or in this case, legalistic teachings about how people get to heaven by obeying the law and their own works. And we read about this happening over and over again in the Bible and the New Testament. In fact, in the entire letter of Paul to the church at Galatia, it's about how some Christians were beginning to return to the teaching of the Jewish religious leaders rather than continuing in the teachings of Christ. Even the Apostle Peter began to fall away and so Paul tells us that he had to confront Peter about trying to go back and mandate that the newly converts go back to Jewish practices of things like circumcision. So what are these consequences? Well, our text leads us right into what it is. If you look at the very first beginning of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, it says, It is impossible... For those who have, for those who have, for those who have. And verse 6 says, then it is impossible to do what? To restore them again to repentance. Since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and they're holding Him up to contempt. 
the impossibility of being restored or renewed again to repentance. Most people, when they see that, it's impossible to renew or to restore someone to repentance who has fallen away to them. It sounds like that person's lost their salvation. But that's only because most people don't understand repentance, which is that first milk doctrine. See, most Christians don't have a clue what repentance is all about. I mean, who's it for and what does repentance accomplish? Remember, repentance means to turn away from sin. Although it literally means to change one's mind, it always has sin as its object, and repentance always means to turn away from sin. As such, then, God calls everybody to turn away from sin and to turn toward Him. Furthermore, while repentance is for everybody, nobody gets eternal life simply because they repent. The only condition for receiving eternal life is believing in Jesus for it. When people do repent, whoever they are, and and whether they're Christians or not, it, it is always and only for a temporal deliverance from the consequences of that sin which they've committed. Remember, repentance is the result of this action verb that's translated restore, or in some translations, renew again. So, to restore again is this active voice verb, and it implies someone or something is trying to bring about the person to repentance. But there's nothing. I mean, there's no preaching, there's no communion service, there's no sacrifice. There is nothing that is going to get that person that I can do to make them repent again. I'm I'm hopeless in this. I can lead somebody before they've accepted Christ. I can lead them to Christ and they can show them what He's done for them. And they see Him and they see themselves and they repent of their sins and they've acknowledged that and they embrace Him. But once they have tasted of all of this once they have experienced Christ on their own now if they go back to that there's nothing I can say that's going to make them repent I cannot restore them again it's not up to me at this point and so Jesus himself explained the need for continual repentance when he said in Luke chapter 13 You'll find this in verses 1 through 9. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the word that Jesus uses there for repent is a present tense verb. It carries with it a continuous action, indicates this habitual or ongoing repeated action of repenting. Like repeated repentance was needed in the Old Testament times, so there are times when repentance is needed and expected of Christians. Acts chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We can't just repent one time and accept Christ and think that's it and then go on sinning and living the rest of our lives the way we want to. No, we've got to continue in a fashion and a heart of repentance with Him from here on. Recognizing that even the sins after we have been, quote, saved, we still have got to acknowledge and turn from. I mean, it's, it's obvious that we've got to live this way. And the person who refuses to repent, and they're standing on shifty sand regarding their salvation. I've often wondered if, if this is what John means when he speaks about sin that leads to death in 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Listen to what he says. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, 
He shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And then he says, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. It would also seem that, that Peter deals with the same topic in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, when he says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. You see, the Bible does seem to present the idea that a person can so sin as to reach a point of no return in his downward slide of falling away from God. Maybe that's why Paul strongly warns the Christians in Romans chapter 6 to be cautious about continuing to live in sin because they think that the grace of God will increase even more by the more ways in which they sin. You, you died to sin. You can no longer live in it, he says. How can you do that? By no means. You can't because you're not supposed to be there. You've got to put it aside and no longer live that way. And so it is not that the more you sin, the more grace you receive. It doesn't happen that way. Instead, we have our writer Hebrews. He's saying that they can again crucify to themselves the Son of God and make a mockery of Jesus and put him to open shame and contempt. But he doesn't leave us with such bad news. And I'm going to close with this. And then we're going to move into our, our time of communion. He speaks that if we continue to live in sin and we, we, we reject the fact that what Christ has done for us we are in essence crucifying him to myself all over again every time I do it. I've got to have all this combined. And we have to understand what the crucifixion was. I mean, it was so important that Jesus decided he was going to take a specific moment in history and he was going to set aside a special dinner that was a covenantal dinner with the people of Israel called the Passover. And, and every year, the people of Israel were to have this special meal and commemorate what God did for them by bringing them out of Egypt and sparing their lives and saving them from the midst of even death in Egypt when the death passed through the community. As long as that sacrificial lamb and his blood was spread over the doorpost of their house, death would not enter. And so they had certain things that they were supposed to eat within that meal. And as they're eating this meal... Jesus is trying to get them to understand that something as new is going to happen. It is a new covenant in my blood, a new covenant with my body being broken, a new covenant under a crucifixion on a cross that I'm about to experience here just in a little bit. And so he wants them to remember him by partaking of communion. If you have your, your communion with you, go ahead and get that ready. You see, because Jesus is explaining to his disciples that this covenant that God had established with his people, this old covenant that they had been honoring for so many years and commemorating by the Passover, Jesus now says, this is going to be a new 
covenant. A new way opened for us through the curtain, which is his body that's going to be hung on a cross. And through his blood, which is shed, it's going to be over the doorpost and the doorframe of our heart. So whenever we drink of this fruit of the vine and whenever we eat of this unleavened bread, we are to remember the sacrifice that is being made. He offered his sacrifice once for all. We shouldn't crucify him every day. We should remember that this sacrifice, that this bread represents his body. And the horrendous beating that he went through and that that physical body was given and it died and it was broken for our sins why would you want to return to them again we partake and we remember as he took the cup before them and he said I want you to recognize this cup This fruit of the vine that reminds us of His blood that was shed. See, when they went to the temple, blood was shed. It was poured out for the sins of the people. It was sprinkled on the altar, but not only on the altar, it was sprinkled on the priests, and it was sprinkled on the people themselves, indicating that it was their death that he was avoiding for a period of time because of this sacrifice. But this sacrifice, this blood that was being shed, Jesus says, is a new covenant. And it is my blood that is given as a ransom for you and for me so that our sins might be covered and forgiven once and for all. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that what you have done through Jesus. Your word is so powerful. It's so so effective. If we will just read it and study it and learn it and allow it to become a part of our character and our heart and who we are. And if we would then no longer go and look back at the ways in which we used to live and desire to be them again. But Father, we will carry with us each and every day your Son and His death, and the manner in which we live today. May Your Spirit never leave us or forsake us. And may we give You glory and honor and praise, not only with our lips, but with our life. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.